0: my question is, how is this even possible? How could such a prominent area of the city and of the country have gotten this terrible reputation and been this awful crime-ridden place, you know, when the country was younger? Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to episode nine of the Trip Hacks DC podcast. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Trip Hacks DC Tours. The summer tour season is in full swing. So check out triphacksdc.com slash tours to see what's coming up. Today, I am joined by Carolyn Moraskin, and we are going to talk all about America's Main Street, Pennsylvania Avenue. Carolyn is the owner of DC Design Tours, a tour company that runs historical tours of Washington, D.C., with a focus on architecture, urban planning, and design. And you may remember her if you listened to the very first episode of the Trip Hacks DC podcast. So, Carolyn, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So today's episode is going to be all about Pennsylvania Avenue, which... Uh, most listeners have surely heard about, uh, even if they haven't visited, because it is often colloquially referred to as America's main street.
1: That's right. Uh, didn't start off that way, though. Initially, the neighborhood was known as Murder Bay.
0: So uh, let's get into that. Um, but before we do, you do run a tour down Pennsylvania Avenue. So the reason why I asked you for uh, you know, your assistance in helping with this topic is because you know a whole lot about it.
1: Yes, thanks, Rob. Uh, we run a tour called Presidential Neighborhood White House and Pennsylvania Avenue, and uh, these are public walking tours. Anyone can sign up, dcdesigntours.com, and we cover the whole presidential neighborhood from the White House out to the Capitol building.
0: So Pennsylvania Avenue, I think most people, when they visit, uh, they go and they think, this is a nice place. You know, these these buildings are very iconic. They're big. They're beautiful. But like you said, it hasn't always been that way, and the neighborhood around Pennsylvania Avenue got the... Not so nice nickname of Murder Bay when it, uh, when the country and the city was quite a bit younger. So I want to read from Wikipedia exactly what it says about this area called Murder Bay. It says, Murder Bay was a disreputable slum in Washington, D.C., roughly bounded by Constitution Avenue Northwest, Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest, and 15th Street Northwest. Uh, currently known as the Federal Triangle. The area was a center of crime with extensive criminal underclass and prostitution occurring in several brothels in the area. My question is, how is this even possible? How could a such a prominent area of the city and of the country have gotten this terrible reputation and been this awful crime ridden place, you know, when the country was younger?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And Wikipedia certainly doesn't hold back in their description. Um, so it all goes back to the very beginning with the layout of our city plan. So this is 1791, Pierre L'Enfant, Frenchman who had fought in the American Revolution was hired to lay out the plans of the city, and he picks uh, sort of three main axes. We've got the Capitol at one end, the White House on the other, and the Washington Monument more or less where that triangle meets. So Pennsylvania Avenue, which was named for the most powerful colony of the day, originally all of our avenues are named for the 13 colonies, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue is laid out between the Capitol building and the White House. And Pierre L'Enfant envisions this grand boulevard, a setting for all of our national events, which does sort of happen, inaugurations and protests and things like that, but unfortunately, before Pierre L'Enfant can see his uh, vision come to fruition, he um, gets fired from the project, so he starts knocking down people's houses and cutting down their crops and messing with the cows that are grazing along what will become Pennsylvania Avenue, and so he, um, he's fired from the project, and the momentum that he brought to it just sort of peters off right away.
0: And, and it was was it Thomas Jefferson who fired Pierre L'Enfant? L'Enfant seemed to make a lot of enemies uh, back among the early leaders.
1: He did. Well, initially, he was George Washington's um, close confidant because he had fought in the American Revolution. It was actually a little bit of nepotism, perhaps. Uh, where George Washington hired L'Enfant. But Thomas Jefferson also liked him. I mean, Jefferson was a Francophile. He loved the French. But they struggled, the two of them, to kind of get him under control. And there's actually these really interesting letters between Jefferson and Washington arguing about how best to like babysit Pierre L'Enfant. So they both end up coming to the decision that he has to be removed or this, our na- new national capital will not be built.
0: So LaFont gets fired and then someone else picks up the project and they, I guess, don't share the vision of LaFont, at least as far as this area that's now
1: Pennsylvania Avenue goes. Well, LaFont also didn't want to give his entire vision away so he would like draw a, bit, a little piece especially when he was meant to design the capitol and the white house he would draw a little section and then hand it off and then draw another little section so his plan the full on front plan is really changed and adapted by the men that come that had worked with him but then come after him uh, andrew ellicott and benjamin banneker and they're the ones who kind of see the the city plan out, though it takes a very long time, way past their lifetime, obviously, to get Pennsylvania Avenue to what it is today.
0: So what was Pennsylvania Avenue like back in those days? Nowadays, it's a proper paved street with six lanes of traffic and a bike lane but what was it a dirt road was it like what what exactly would it have looked like back in the 1800s
1: I think dirt road even is generous so it was this unpaved miasmal sort of thoroughfare it was muddy it was haphazard there were rocks horses would break their legs and ankles on it uh, there was also the Washington Canal that was running right along what is now Constitution Avenue and you can imagine uh, the canal was never very successful it be- basically became a A hotbed of disease, malaria, typhoid, all coming out of that canal, like a big gross open sewer. And um, they didn't even pave Pennsylvania Avenue, and I say "pave" in quotes because um, they put wooden blocks on the road in 1871. But that really just made it even more treacherous. So it wasn't truly paved until the 1900s. Pennsylvania Avenue.
0: So this is a family-friendly show, but like I read in the Wikipedia description, some pretty, uh, you know, not so great stuff happened down here. So what, you know, what kind of stuff was going on on Pennsylvania Avenue? Was it, you know, the kind of neighborhood that the locals? would have considered dangerous or visitors to the city would have specifically avoided? Like, what What was it like to have visited back then?
1: Yeah, it was a huge embarrassment. In fact, Mark Twain comes to Washington, D.C. around the time of the Civil War, and he calls the city, uh, Washington, the City of Magnificent Intentions. So um, Pennsylvania Avenue was a terrible neighborhood. The police often wouldn't even go there because they knew how dangerous it was. It was a hotbed of, just as you said, brothels, saloons, gambling, uh, lots of murder, of course, hence the name Murder Bay. Um, there's even a great quote, if I can read it, from the Evening Star, which is an old newspaper from Washington, D.C., uh, from the year 1900 about uh paving, quote, paving Pennsylvania Avenue. And it says, unfortunately, the city paved the avenue some time ago and thus robbed it of its one-time distinction of being the worst street in the world. So that should kind of paint a picture for us.
0: So that's really interesting. And even when they paved it, they didn't really pave it, like you said. So when exactly did it get properly cleaned up? Was it the 1900s? Was it very recently? Or was And what sort of spurred the, you know, development uh, in you know, the leaders to say, it's time to clean this place up?
1: Yeah, it, it happened in, in long phases, as a lot of the development of Washington, D.C. does. So around 1901, we have this um, sort of big overhaul of Washington, D.C. We talk about this all the time on our tours with something called the Macmillan Plan. So after the Civil War, Washington, D.C. is in pretty bad shape, even though there are no battles in the city. Um, we've got this huge influx of soldiers, a lot of diseases being spread, and so in the late 1800s, Congress actually entertained the idea of abandoning Washington, D.C. altogether and moving the capital to St. Louis, Missouri, which, sorry, Midwesterners, did not happen. But that serves as kind of a kick in the pants to get them to really— make D.C. worthy of the nation. So in 1901, this Macmillan plan is published. The two designers in charge, Frederick Law Olmsted, who's known as the father of landscape architecture, designer of Central Park and half the city of Chicago, and then another architect named Daniel Burnham. And so they oversee this overhaul for the city, and one of their main focuses is the redevelopment, the paving even, of Pennsylvania Avenue. And then there's a couple more steps. So the plan is published in 1901. Uh, 1914, they outlawed prostitution, which was a good idea because that was running rampant on Pennsylvania Avenue. So
0: it wasn't illegal before that?
1: No, it wasn't illegal. Um, And there is this myth, actually. I know it's a family show, but to talk about prostitution for a second. There's this myth about the word hooker that it originated in Washington, D.C., because during the Civil War, General Hooker was in charge of some of the Army, the Army of the Potomac in Washington, and um, the Army was stationed in the city, and so a group of women followed them around, uh, these prostitutes, and they called them Hooker's Army. There's different var- varieties of that myth. It's not true because the word hooker was being used in the 1830s, long before the Civil War, but it does um, give us a sense of, of what the neighborhood would have been like. So uh, prostitution was not illegal, but they created a s- sort of area where the prostitutes could ply their trade right along Pennsylvania Avenue. But by 1914, the whole city, Congress, decides no more prostitution.
0: Okay, and 1914 is, as historians know, just a few years before another type of prohibition that, you know, if this is the area where you're coming to do that sort of thing, I imagine uh, caused quite a few changes in that regard as well.
1: Yeah, so prohibition, meaning the banning of the distribution, sale, and production of alcohol, comes along in 1920, uh, goes through till 1933. This actually had mixed results for Pennsylvania Avenue because it, it made it illegal to drink, but of course it just pushed it all underground. Uh, In fact, there was a speakeasy, well, probably many speakeasies, but one speakeasy along Pennsylvania Avenue uh, was particularly famous called Shoemaker's Saloon. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read you another quote from a newspaper. This is pre-Prohibition, 1911, but it says, uh, Shoemaker's Saloon specializes in perpendicular drinks. One may sit down at Shoemaker's, but one would rather not. Those who are on their feet when the building falls down will have a much better chance of getting out. So I imagine Shoemaker's Saloon certainly still existed during Prohibition. It was just a little more... Secret.
0: And if you're, you know, wondering if you can come today in 2019 or whenever you're listening to this podcast and visit shoemakers, you cannot. None <laughs> of these old historic places are still around, uh, for better or worse, I suppose.
1: Though there are a few, they call themselves speakeasies, like along Connecticut Avenue. We talk about this on our Embassy Row and Dupont Circle tour, where you have to have a password and a handle on a bathroom opens, and there's a bar behind, you know, the men's stall. So they still kind of exists, but of course.
0: I mean, speakeasy to the sense that they actually got a proper liquor license right, right. from the city and all of that stuff. But I guess it's it's all for the uh, experience more so than the illegality of it all. Nowadays. So we've gotten up to uh, roughly, you know, the end of Prohibition and now we're into uh, the Great Depression. So what happens to Pennsylvania Avenue now? It sounds like we still haven't gotten to the point where it's a prominent street where people want to visit.
1: Yeah, that is still true. So a few more landmark dates. So 1914 was Pro prostitution, banning prostitution, 1933 prohibition ends. In 1926, um, the city passed the Public Buildings Act, and that was a plan to redevelop Pennsylvania Avenue. And that actually continued during the Great Depression on purpose, of course. One, because the neighborhood needed to be redeveloped, but also to create jobs for the city and to really encourage people to have faith in their government. That's also why all the buildings in Federal Triangle are in a neoclassical style, Greek, you know, Roman inspired. And that's to, um, evoke a strong sense of stable government, stable federal government.
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, when I give a tour and we visit the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial, when I'm describing the New Deal, I often ask if people have any favorite buildings in the city or any they think are particularly beautiful, and they almost always name some of the ones from that era because that was a time when we were building really wonderful buildings. You know, both for getting people back to work and you know building the faith in the government.
1: Yeah, different different era. Uh, so Federal Triangle is mostly happens in the 1930s after the Depression. There's seven neoclassical buildings that they Finish. And they have kind of a visual cohesion. They all have those limestone kind of white gray facades. They have the red tile roofs. If you visit the old post tower, which we'll probably get to in a few minutes, you get a great view of uh, federal triangle. A good example, just one of the seven buildings was the Department of Commerce. That was the first. So it was built in 1932. President Hoover lays the cornerstone. And it was at the time one of the biggest office buildings in the world. It's a thousand feet long. There were no interior partitions. So you could have laid down the Washington monument inside of the building. It was 1.8 million square feet. It had six courtyards, over 3,000 rooms. It was this huge space, and the Department of Commerce had actually just been combining um, bureaus— So if you look at the building, if you visit it, you'll see the seals of all these different bureaus, things, really weird ones, like Lighthouse Inspection and Steamboat Services and Fisheries Commission. And so they combined all of those into this department. So if you can imagine being in the middle of the Great Depression in 1932 and you're seeing this magnificent, massive edifice go up, it might... You know, inspire you to have some confidence.
0: People uh, at the end of my tour, when we end at the Washington Monument or the World War II Memorial, they often will point to that building and say, "Hey, what's that?" Because it's not one that's very obvious. You don't see it in the movies or on the TV shows, but it is a magnificent building that you know from a distance. You want to know what, what's going on in there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it holds a lot of significance.
0: So, what happened after the uh, you know after the Great Depression? What sort of progress did we make in the years and decades after that?
1: So, after uh, Federal Triangle is finished. Then, at that point, the south side of Pennsylvania Avenue has been redeveloped. All the slums and the brothels have moved out. It's now this big, long block of government buildings. But the north side actually was still suffering, and it was suffering all the way through till John F. Kennedy's inauguration. And when he's inaugurated, he and Jackie are walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, and they're noticing that the north side of Pennsylvania Avenue is still really um, underdeveloped. It was kind of like low-lying, commercial, old buildings from the 1800s, empty lots, and so in 1972, there's another push called the Pennsylvania Avenue, Development, Pennsylvania Avenue Development Corporation, and that's when the north side of Pennsylvania Avenue starts to kind of come to fruition. Uh, one of the big additions there was the Canadian Embassy, which is still there. We have a blog post about it, if anyone's into reading architecture blogs, about the design of the Canadian Embassy. Uh, it's the only embassy on Pennsylvania Avenue, meaning the Pennsylvania Avenue between the Capitol and the White House. And that originally was an empty lot that had been used as a Ford dealership for a time. And so they built this um, 1980s-looking sort of embassy building, but it did help to renovate the north side of Pennsylvania Avenue.
0: And you'll definitely know when you see the embassy, at least in the summer, they like to fly a lot of flags, uh, <laughs> maple leaf flags. Um At the embassy. And it turns out that it's not just that embassy I visited, uh, London several years back, and the Canadian embassy in London looked very similar. Lots of maple leaf flags everywhere.
1: A lot of pride. Good for them.
0: Just just like us, they like to, to fly their flag and, and everything like that. So that's really interesting. Um, I think it makes sense when you think about Pennsylvania Avenue. One side of the street are very stately government buildings, and the other side of the street kind of a hodgepodge of various things. Um, so the, the embassy is obviously an embassy, which is uh, at its core an office building. But then a few blocks down is the uh, Navy memorial, the U.S. Navy uh, Memorial. So can you tell us about how um, that wound up on such a prime piece of real estate over there?
1: Sure. So that section, interestingly, was originally designed way back in the L'Enfant plan, we're talking 1790s, as something called the Central Market. So he envisioned, we have Eastern Market still, that's the only market that's still around from L'Enfant's plan, but he envisioned these big commercial markets sort of in every section of the city. And Central Market was built, uh, but it was referred to usually as Marsh Market, because again, it was down by the canal. And it it was a bustling part of the city. It had a lot of commerce, but it wasn't very nice. And um, by the 1980s, it's kind of this empty lot. So in 1987, they take the piece of property, and that's why it's shaped in such a way. There's these curved buildings on either side. Um, They take the building for the Navy Memorial. So the Navy Memorial is built in 1987. It's dedicated not just to the Navy, but also to the Marines, the Coast Guard, and the Merchant Marines. And the whole Old Market area had all been demolished by 1931, so they weren't destroying anything historic in the 80s. There's these beautiful fountains um, surrounding a memorial representing the seven seas, and there's a map in the center, and the colors are inverted, so the water is dark and the land is light. And then there's this really lovely statue uh, by a sculptor named Stanley Blanfield of the Lone Sailor, and it's made of bronze. The bronze was actually taken from naval ships all around the country and there are 12 replicas of this sailor. It's a, a figure standing there. It looks like he's waiting for his ship to come in with his sort of knapsack next to him. And I actually just recently saw a copy of that statue at Pearl Harbor, and there's 11 others.
0: So that makes total sense, Pearl Harbor being a big naval uh, historic place and the Navy Memorial being a place of naval significance. So uh, that's an interesting one as well. And then um, just down from the Navy Memorial is the Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, FBI headquarters building, which most people do recognize because if you watch any TV show that is about the FBI, and there are many, they show an external shot of this building quite frequently. Uh, So my question um, for you, because I get this all the time and I don't really know a coherent answer to it, is why is this building so ugly? Why is it so (laughs) terrible?
1: Yeah, I hear that too. Some people are a fan of brutalism, so don't, don't be offended if you're a brutalism fan. I personally am not. I don't think, Rob, you are either.
0: I think the building's ugly even without knowing the architectural style.
1: So uh, the style is called Brutalism. It actually, it's not from the word brutal. It's from Latin, but the def- building definitely looks brutal. Brutalism was really popular around the late 60s and early 70s. The other most famous Brutalist building is Boston City Hall, which is atrocious. Um, you'll see it on college campuses. You'll even see it in small towns. It becomes popular, um, one, because it's cheap and it's easy to build. These buildings are all built with precast concrete. So that means they cast it off-site and then they brought it ran steel rebar in between and then kind of clipped it together like Legos. The FBI building is particularly egregious, um, largely because of a lot of fighting that happened during the design. The architect um, who was hired in the 1970s, his name was Charles Murphy, and he was really caught in conflict between the interests of the FBI and the interests of the city. So the FBI wanted—they did want to be on this prominent block, but they wanted a big bomb-proof fortress— And then the city wanted a a building that would engage with the street. So they wanted retail or public spaces that would be uh, accessible to the public. And that's actually why if you look at the FBI building on the ground level, you'll see there are these sort of spaces with big blocks of black stone. And that's where the envisioned shops would go. Of course, the FBI building is not going to allow for shops. There's also a running track along the second level. Sometimes you'll see FBI people working out there. That was meant to be open to the public. And the FBI um, actually said it would be open. And then, of course, as soon as the building opened, they closed it off. And after the building was done, it was widely criticized. It was called a swaggering bully. People said it stifled development on Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, they still have trouble now. There's a lot of deterioration happening on the building. Again, if you go to see it, we show this on our tour, there's netting at the top of FBI building. And that's because the concrete has actually started to deteriorate and pieces otherwise would be falling onto the sidewalks. So uh, there's also been flooding and, and even the FBI says now it's not secure enough. So you probably know the FBI planned to move to a campus um, out in the suburbs, I think out in Virginia
0: uh, so I know that the FBI doesn't love its building anymore, and they uh, wanted to move. They wanted a more secure location, bigger, more parking, all of that stuff. And so the General Services Administration, which is the government agency that basically you know buys, builds, and leases office buildings, they worked really hard for years to find a suitable location in the suburbs, and recently it was announced that they didn't find one. Uh, they couldn't make it work, and so the FBI will stay on Pennsylvania Avenue for the foreseeable future.
1: I think the building is going to slowly be completely covered in netting, if that's the case.
0: And and it is a bummer because um, that block of Pennsylvania Avenue is just really unpleasant to walk down because many of the other blocks, you know, there are restaurants down on the ground floor or a you know shop you can pop into or a hotel entrance that has people coming and going, but that block is just so desolate and so uh, dead that you just feel like, you know, nothing not happy and not uh, like you're in a good mood when you walk down that block. At least I don't.
1: Yeah, it's kind of oppressive, that section of Pennsylvania Avenue.
0: So the plan with moving the FBI out to the suburbs and the reason why so many locals were really on board with this was because they would demolish the building and build a new modern building that would have all of those proper amenities. And it would feel much more part of the city and part of the street than the current FBI building does.
1: Yeah, I guess we'll see what happens
0: So uh, a few other things I want to ask about on Pennsylvania Avenue. So um, a few more blocks down closer to the White House is a big square um, that is really kind of hard for me to describe. And I (laughs) I struggle when people ask me about this. Uh, It's just a big square that often has teenagers skateboarding on it. But uh, if you come on the weekends, you might see um, a marathon or a charity run set up, you know, their start and end there um, or – a few years ago when we had the Occupy uh, movement, they were, had people occupying this space. So can you sort of say what this space is and why it is what it is?
1: Sure. So you're talking about Freedom Plaza. Correct. Uh, which is also along Pennsylvania Avenue, also built in the 80s. And it's this, it's very weird. I agree with you, Rob. It's this big empty lot, sort of a big square, that actually disrupts the axis of Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, this was also built during that kind of redevelopment phase of the north side of Pennsylvania Avenue. It was designed by a pretty famous postmodern architect named Robert Venturi. He's famous for, uh, there's another quote from a different architect that says, less is more. And Robert Venturi countered saying, less is a bore. So he had um, a long career, 60s through the 90s, and uh, he was much more playful in his design. So he envisioned this park to disrupt the axis of Pennsylvania Avenue like the Treasury Building does. That decision obviously being made way back in Andrew Jackson's administration. But it, it I don't think it quite worked. Sorry, Robert Venturi. Um, it does have some use. So it is a public gathering space. It's all flat. It's useful for me on my tours because inlaid in the ground is actually a map of the original Lawn plan. So you can see the floor plans of the White House and the Capitol. They have the street grid. They have the old Central Market. They have grass where the mall would be and the market would be. Um, there's also a, a random statue of uh, General Pulaski, who was a Polish general who fought in the American Revolution. Um, But nowadays, just like you said, it's mostly used uh, for skateboarders. There are some neat things uh, underground, too. There are quotes and things inlaid, again, on the ground. But underneath, there's a time capsule related to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King wrote his famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech, which, of course, was given on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the Willard Hotel, which I think we're going to talk about, uh, which is right across the way. And so when they built the park, Uh, The square, they made a time capsule. They took uh, Dr. King's robes, they took his Bible, the pen that he had used to write the speech, and they encapsulated it. Now it's buried under Freedom Plaza.
0: That is interesting. I did not know that. I I guess my criticism or complaint about Freedom Plaza is, you know, if they wanted to put a public space there, why couldn't have they made it a nice space? You know, put up some trees and some benches and just made it a pleasant place to be as opposed to what I kind of just think of as a big slab in the middle of the city.
1: Yeah. Well, the Seagate borders at least are happy.
0: So let's, uh, let's go to the Willard Hotel because that is um, within eyesight of Freedom Plaza, and this is one of the oldest hotels in Washington, D.C. Uh, it is famous because it's right next to the White House, and so back in the early days when uh, the city didn't have a tourism industry or a convention industry. Uh, when visitors came to visit people like the president or important people um, in the, the government, they had few options for places to stay. And the Willard was one of the places you could stay. And uh, past presidents themselves have actually enjoyed going and, and hanging out at the Willard back before the days of Secret Service and extreme security that we have nowadays. So this hotel has been around for a long time. So what do you know about it that's interesting?
1: Yeah, the Willard is a, just like Pennsylvania Avenue it has a long history. So it was built way in the early 1800s. It closed and opened and closed and open, it had fires. Uh, it's been renovated a number of times. but just like you said, it's always been this sort of center of political conversation. And there's a story related to the Willard that I'm sorry to spoil is actually not true, but it's about the origin of the word lobbyist. So the story goes that President Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, would go to the lobby of the, or go to the Willard Hotel, and he would drink. So Grant, unfortunately, has this reputation of being an alcoholic, and he probably was. Apparently, that's a bit overblown if you read the Chernow biography on Grant that just came out. Um, but he would go to the bar called the Round Robin Bar, which is still there. He would drink, and people would wait in the lobby for him to stumble out, and then run up to him and ask him for stuff, for favors. And that story is probably not true. The, oh, and then supposedly Grant says to his friend, you know, can we not get rid of these damned lobbyists? So probably not the origin of the word lobby, but it does sort of evoke what the lobby used to be like certainly was the center of political conversation. It's still beautiful if people have time to go in and just take a look. There's an area in the building called Peacock Alley. Peacock um, meaning it would evoke, you know, ladies in their fine, beautiful dresses parading up and down, you know, a and be scene sort of place. But Peacock Alley is gorgeous, those red velvet carpets and lots of pretty furniture. The lobby has, you know, gilded ceilings and uh, they have the seals of all the states on the ceiling. They have Lovely um, murals of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, both of who stayed at the Willard. There is a lot of history there, but I don't think it's quite uh, the lobby that we would envision from Grant's day.
0: Yeah, so the the Willard family has not been involved in uh, the business operation of the hotel in, in many years. It is now um, has a corporate owner, the Intercontinental Hotels. So it is a pretty standard corporate chain hotel nowadays, even though it does still have a lot of the history and a beautiful lobby. I will agree with you on that. I think I, I looked into this um, issue uh, of the lobbyists and historians seem to really debate uh, the origin of the term, but it, it definitely means that in a lobby somewhere, whether that's you know a state capital or a hotel or wherever, that people are asking politicians for favors. So I think at least in that sense, it makes sense that Grant would have potentially said that when he saw those people. So let's talk about a few tips for people who want to visit Uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Of course, this is Trip Hacks DC, so we got to have some Trip Hacks (laughs) to to include with the podcast. So um, the first one is about the old post office. We haven't even talked about that building yet. Beautiful building. um, And there is a clock tower that is free and it's open to the public. And in my opinion, one of, if not the best view in the entire city.
1: Definitely, yeah, especially since the Washington Monument is closed and is going to be closed. They use the word indefinitely, which is not encouraging.
0: I always find that hilarious that the sign for the last year and a half has said, closed indefinitely. Yeah, it's
1: printed right there. Uh, so if the Washington Monument's closed for, for visitors, the post tower definitely is the best bet. The clock tower is 315 feet tall. It's positioned right along Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and you get a fabulous view of the Capitol, of the road over toward, you can't quite see the White House, but over toward the White House. Uh, the building also has a storied past, built in 1899. It's designed in a style called, uh, Romanesque Revival. So it looks a little bit like, a, maybe like a church or a little bit like a cathedral. Uh, people <laughs> didn't like it, right? From the very beginning, it was criticized for looking like a cross between a cathedral and a cotton mill. And another critic said it looked like Washington's old tooth. So it really didn't match with its neoclassical neighbors. In fact, when they started building Federal Triangle in the uh, early 30s, the building was slated for demolition, the old post tower. Fortunately, it was saved, one, first because of World War I and then World War II, and then the efforts of some really um, strong-willed historic preservationists, including Jackie Kennedy, who was involved in that, um, When it was built, it was built for the headquarters of the post office. They actually didn't stay in there for very long because the building was fraught with problems. There were uh, leaks. um, There was an explosion. There were also structural issues. Um, The floor of the ninth floor actually collapsed under the weight of too many filing cabinets, and it killed six people. Uh, The postmaster general also fell 90 feet down an open elevator shaft and died. And uh the clock that's at the top, the weight at the bottom had a steel cable that was used to wind it, and the steel cable snapped, and the weight crashed through three levels of offices and destroyed the new postmaster general's desk. So the post office ends up relocating. Can you blame them, right?
0: That's all very terrifying, I will yeah. say.
1: They relocated in 1935, and then the building bounced around a whole bunch. It was owned by the General Services Administration, and then it just recently went through a big renovation, and it opened as a hotel. So now it's a hotel.
0: Right. So the the building is still owned by the government, by the General Services Administration. Uh, the hotel leases it. And um, one of the agreements that they made uh, many years ago when they were going through the lease negotiation was that the clock tower would not be part of the hotel.
1: Yeah, that is nice. So-
0: so it's completely separate from the hotel. If you go into the hotel lobby and ask where's the clock tower, they're going to send you back outside and around the corner. Uh, the entrance is next to the Starbucks. Uh, I do have a video that shows you exactly where you need to go because you need to go around the side of the building um, and then go into the door in the back next to the Starbucks. So it's a little tricky to find, but worth it. And in my opinion, even when the Washington Monument is open, the view is better than the Washington Monument because you can see the Capitol sort of down Pennsylvania Avenue, which I think is really cool. Um, So another tip that I mentioned in the previous episode of the podcast is to get a bike, uh, perhaps a Capital Bike Share bike, and ride it down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue. We have a a bike lane that's been there for – few years now, and uh, quite a nice view if you get a chance to do that.
1: Yeah, that is a great way to visit Pennsylvania Avenue. You could do bikes, you could do segways, you could do the little scooters, um, and you're just riding right down the center of the street. Uh, I know you mentioned this, so I'll tag you to explain. There is a blue line going down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue.
0: Yeah, so depending on when you visit, you may notice a blue painted line in the middle of the street and wonder what it is, uh, and it will be much more prominent if you visit right after an inauguration, because because the blue line is painted in the middle of the street so that the parade that goes from the inauguration at the Capitol to the White House does not, I guess, go off track uh, so that they can move in a straight line and not zigzag all around. So if you visit right, you know, uh, three years after an inauguration, it might be faded. It might not be visible anymore. But if you visit right after one, you'll definitely see it there.
1: And everything on Pennsylvania Avenue is removable. So all the streetlights and the barriers and the blockades, it all comes out so they can open up the street entirely for inauguration.
0: It's quite a production for sure. So if you've, if you've watched an inauguration on TV or the next time we have one, keep an eye out for that blue line uh, so you know, you know exactly what that is. Another um, fun you know, piece of history, I guess, is the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial. Now, wait, you're probably thinking, isn't the Franklin Roosevelt Memorial way over on the Tidal Basin by the Jefferson Memorial? And yes, it is. But there's actually a second one. So do you know what that's all about?
1: Yes. Yeah. So we talk about this also on our uh, White House and Pennsylvania Avenue tour. There is this little, I guess it's not little, but there's this block of stone uh, right on the corner next to the National Archives. And this is the original FBI memorial. Excuse me original fdr memorial Uh, before fdr passed away he was asked how he wanted to be memorialized and he was supposedly sitting at his presidential desk and he kind of looks at his desk he taps on it he says i want a block of stone the size of this desk with my name on it by the national archives so that is what they did
0: and uh, i guess i would call it small compared to the one that you see when you go on the Monuments Memorials tour, and you're just shocked at how massive his memorial is, and you wonder, how did he get such a big one? And you know Thomas Jefferson and Abe Lincoln, by comparison, didn't get big ones. Because he specifically said he didn't want that one. He wanted this you know relatively small one that he got over near the National Archives. And I think um, of all the presidents who have memorials on the National Mall, he was the only one who got to weigh in on his own memorial.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true.
0: Thomas Jefferson, I think, if he ever imagined that um, a memorial would be built in his honor would be appalled and uh, upset because building statues to country's leaders was the sort of thing that we did in, uh, you know, England at the time. Um, and the whole purpose of starting this country was to not do stuff like that. So quite interesting how we wound up building a memorial to him and the other people as well. One more thing that I want to ask about, because this one, by the time you're listening to the podcast, may have already changed, is the museum. The Museum of the News is very prominently located on Pennsylvania Avenue next to the Canadian Embassy. And I always uh, used to say that if you're going to pay to see a museum, make it the Museum, because it really is quite, uh, quite a good museum. Um, of course, it's, all, it's competing with all of these amazing free museums, which makes it a tough business model to sustain. And in fact, they just recently announced in, in 2019 or maybe late 2018 that they will no longer be operating in, uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue.
1: Yeah, that is such a loss for the city. It's so, it's like you said, it's so hard to compete. We have these amazing Smithsonian museums all free. But the museum, I always said the same thing, is such a fascinating place, all about our freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Uh, unfortunately, they bit off a little more than they could chew. They built this beautiful building, seven stories with a giant vaulted atrium, And um, they just haven't been able to sustain it. So they're going to be selling the building to Johns Hopkins, and they'll be moving out at the end of the year. And they're apparently looking for a new home. But if you have the opportunity, definitely take advantage. If you're here until the end of uh, 2019, one of the neatest parts, which you don't even have to pay to see, are the front pages every morning. They come out. They have this display along Pennsylvania Avenue, and they put a front page page from newspapers in every state. And you can see what's going on in every state. They do this every morning just as sort of a public service.
0: I do hope that wherever they move, they're going to keep the tradition of doing today's front pages, because I personally find that fascinating. It's always interesting to see how the news is playing out in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And Johns Hopkins is um, the university that's um, uh, main campus is in Baltimore. They're known for having a very, uh, very good medical school. And so the campus that they're going to Open in the museum is going to be their graduate school primarily. And so, unfortunately, for the visiting public, unless you're a graduate student uh, studying at Johns Hopkins, you're probably not going to be visiting that building anymore. It's going to be more of a standard office building like some of the other buildings on the street. Yeah. So, Carolyn, I want to thank you for coming on again to the TripHacks DC podcast, enlightening us about Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, if people want to sign up for your Pennsylvania Avenue tour, how can they go about doing that?
1: Yes. Thanks for asking. Uh, you can sign up online dcdesigntours.com. We do public tours. There's a big calendar. We also can do it as a private tour. So just get in touch. Let us know. We'd love to have you.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I might sign up for the tour myself. Sounds quite fascinating.
1: Awesome. See you there.
0: Thanks for listening to the TripHacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a TripHacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.